Thank you so very much for joining us, and I'm very grateful to those who just led us in this amazing time of prayer. You know, I don't have to tell you, that here in America, we are surrounded uh, by hurt and pain and protests connected to uh, the loss of life and race. So the question that I want us to wrestle with both this weekend and next weekend is how should Jesus followers be responding in this moment? And even if you're not a Jesus follower, I want to make the case that following Jesus in this moment is the best way forward. So let's lean in. Come on, let's pray together. God, I give you thanks and praise that your spirit is upon us right now. Would you bless this teaching to lead towards understanding and wisdom and healing? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. The passage that I want to read uh, comes from Acts chapter 6, and it's in the context of our series, which says that God wants to do greater through us, even in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of all that's going on. As a matter of fact, this is the opportunity for God to really surprise us with what he wants to pull out of us. All right? Listen to this text. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. And so the 12 called a meeting of all the believers. They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. So, brothers, select seven men who are well-respected, full of the spirit, and full of wisdom. We will give them this responsibility then we, the apostles, can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. Everyone liked this idea. And they uh, chose the following. Stephen's a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas of Antioch, an earlier convert to the Jewish faith. There ends the reading. The first question that I want to spend a little time addressing today is why because I know that there are tons of innocent people who are just trying to figure out why why all the violence why all the protests why all of the outcry in multiple cities more than 30 cities have been in, involved and, and, and why the need to uh, lock cities down, et cetera, et cetera. Why? You just fairly want to know. So I want to spend some time unpacking this complicated question to why. Again, because the real question for us is how do we be faithful Jesus followers in this moment? So we need to understand why. So uh, the first thing that comes to my mind as I think about why is just explodes from this amazing text. First, let me point out that the church is growing here in chapter six. It starts off by saying the multitude is growing. I want to remind you that in chapter two, we're reminded that the church is born on the day of Pentecost, which by the way, we celebrated last weekend. And it is an extremely diverse community. It is uh, made up primarily of Jewish Christians in, the, in that first iteration, but they are, they, are, they are Jewish people from all over the world, including Africa. If you look at the list in chapter two, you'll see super diverse. Now, by the time we get to chapter six, 
they are somewhere between five to 10,000 people growing rapidly. And I point this out to remind you, A, of the diversity of the church, and B, some of you may not know this, but as you look at me, you see an African-American male, but I'm honored to be the pastor of a church that has uh, more than 1,000 people who call NBCC their home. And they're black and white and Asian and Latino, they're Republican and Democrat, they're rich and they're poor, and so uh, these are they who make up the congregation that I get to lead and I get to pastor. These are they who love me and who I love. So while you listen to me as an African-American today, preacher, I want you to keep the context in mind. I'm speaking to a super diverse community, one that has grown to thousands as we now are ministering here online. And that includes you. It's in line with the diversity of the first believers that's found in this text. Secondly, I want to call your attention to this the wonderful combination of words in the text. It says uh, that there started a uh, rumbling of discontent. Can you say rumbling of discontent? Rumbling of discontent. And then it goes on to explain where the rumbling of discontent came from. It says, it reminds us that in this community, there was two groups of people. There, there were those who were part of the uh, Hebrewic uh, Jewish Christian community, which means that these people uh, uh, thought highly of the Jewish culture. Uh, they, uh, they read their Bible in Aramaic. They spoke Hebrew. They ate Jewish food. They honored the Jewish law. And they define themselves uh, by the power of being uniquely Jewish, even though they were believers in Jesus. And then there was this other group. This other group was really defined by uh, the Greco-Roman culture that Alexander the Great unleashed. And, and these Greek Jewish people, they, uh, they spoke G- Greek, their Bible was in Greek, they, uh, they ate Greek food, And uh, honoring all of the traditions of the Jewish culture was not at the center of their understanding of the world. Their understanding was defined by the Greco-Roman world. And these two groups existed. This notion of the rumbling of discontent happened because one of the wonderful things about the church in the early day was that it just wasn't meeting and worshiping and praying, that they were beginning to take care of people who were in need. And the widows were a huge category of people that if you didn't support them, they would end up in terrible poverty or in prostitution. So the church raised up a food program and made sure that the widows were being taken care of. Now... With that in mind, the rumbling of discontent, first and foremost, for me, speaks of the history of discrimination. You see, in order for there to be this notion of discrimination, because that's what the text says, that the Greek uh, Jewish believers believed firmly that their widows were being discriminated against by the Jewish, uh, Hebrew Jewish believers. Now, I just want to point out that in order for that pattern of discrimination to show up inside of the church community, probably it means that it existed already before there was a church community. Can you say history of discrimination? So the first answer to the question, why? Why all of the violence and the pain and the protests connected to a horrible loss of life and and, and race, 
particularly as it relates to African Americans, the first clue is the history of discrimination. Let me just share a little bit here. First of all, I just want to call to your attention that the African American race is the only ethnic group uh, that has ever been enslaved on American soil. And we weren't just enslaved for like 300 days, we were enslaved for 300 years in some of the worst brutality that you can imagine. Then add to that another 100 years of segregation defined by black code laws initially and later Jim Crow laws and all of that together was the society's way of saying to African-American people, you are inferior and you are expendable. Tying those errors together is the fact that over 4,000 African-Americans, primarily men, were lynched publicly by authorities and by the mobs between the late 1800s and 1968. You are expendable and you are inferior. Segregation, I'm sure you remember some of the stories you've read about the fact that in the era of segregation, the suggestion was that African Americans were something that was so horrible about us that you had to keep us separated from uh, their wives and their children. And so we went to separate schools. We drank water at separate fountains. We sat in the back of the bus. We went to the restaurant to get our food. We had to go to the back door. If we were passing a white person on the sidewalk, we would get off the sidewalk, and it had nothing to do with shelter-in-place social distancing laws in order to let that person go. And so when we went to school, and when we went to the courthouse, and we went to the bus, the message was repeated. You are inferior, and you are expendable. Every African-American, I'm sure, has a story like my story, which is, I remember the story that my uncle, who's alive and now my favorite uncle, who shares a story that when he was a boy, about 16 years old in Coachella, Louisiana, his boy bounced over across the street into a white lady's heart. He went in her yard. He went over to get the ball. She called the police, and as a result, they arrested him, took him downtown, and beat him with water hose, mercilessly. You see, most African Americans, <laughs> the history of slavery and discrimination is a living part of our reality. We all have stories like that. Then add to that, I'm talking about the history of discrimination. I'm talking about the answer to the question, why? Why the protests? Why the, the outcry? Why the violence? We add to that, if you will, the notion of discrimination that we deal with day in and day out that we don't always talk about. I mean, we go to get a loan from the bank, and the likelihood is that the loan that we get is going to be somewhere uh, around 5%, when 73 to 83% of white and Asian Americans uh, are, are going to be way lower than that. I mean, we, 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 we look at incarceration rates, and, and, and African Americans are being incarcerated five times more than other folk in the community. Uh, it, we look at, uh, uh, go to the hospital, medical treatment. Serena Williams uh, uh, said uh, the other day after giving birth to her, her child that she almost died because her doctors didn't take her description of what was happening to her body seriously, which is tied to historical kind of context, how African Americans are treated in the medical system, right? We live that out every day. 
That's our experience. We don't always talk about it because we've learned over the years that great is he that is in us than he that is in the world and that we are more than conquerors through Jesus who has who loves us. And boy, have we conquered over the years. But the why question, part of that answer is the history of discrimination. Secondly, when I hear those words, the rumbling of discontent in that text and, and, and explodes into a description of discrimination right there in the text. Uh, what I hear inside those words are some words I heard spoken on my staff just the other day. It's the, it's the sentence, uh, here we go again. You see, I'm sure that these early believers who knew ex- discrimination before they came into the church But now here they are, they're in the church and the Holy Spirit is being poured out and gifts are activated, right? And and the love of Jesus Christ is being preached and proclaimed, this unconditional love. And all of a sudden they look around and they see that the same discrimination that they had experienced externally, they are now experiencing internally. I can just hear them say, here we go. Again. So part of the answer to the question of why, why so much pain? Why, why so much explosion across the cities of America? You know, uh, this became clear to me as I talked with my staff the other day and I asked them to kind of share how they were feeling. And two of the African-American men on my staff, uh, both Jesse and Terry, both of them started off the same way. They both said, I'm tired and here we go again. What could they have meant? Here we go again. Well, here's what they mean. See, despite the history of discrimination that I just explained to you, every day, African Americans wake up in America believing, maybe this is the day that my color of my skin will not be held as a liability against me. Every day we wake up believing, maybe this is the day That when people see me, they're going to see somebody uh, more than just somebody who's expendable or inferior. And maybe this is the day I don't have to prove that I am as good as anyone else. Maybe this is the day. I mean, after all, this is the era of President Barack and Michelle Obama. I mean, come on. After all, this is the era when African-Americans have led companies like American Express and the Time Warner uh, uh, Company. I mean, after all, this is the era we have... Uh, Miss USA, Miss America, Miss Universe, all black women. Surely this is the day that we can wake up and not worry about the color of our skin being a liability. And then we see across our computer screens and our TVs stories of black men and women being killed as with with impunity, as though there's no consequences. And, 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 and you know, there's the story of uh, uh, Michael Brown. And then we catch our breath. And then there's the story of Fred Gray. And then we catch our breath and say, okay. Then there's Philando Castile. And there's Eric Gardner, the first young man who a police officer sit on his, on his head. And, and, and the first young man that we watch die on, on TV as he, as, he, as, he, as he managed to get out the words, I can't breathe, 2014. And then 
there's Brianna Taylor and Ahmad Aubrey and Mr. George Floyd and most recently, David McAtee. Each time we catch up board, our breath. And what Terry, what Jesse was saying is, here we go again, because the situation has gotten worse over the last several years. The culture, it is though it permits and licenses such a thing. And so what, what they were saying is, here we go again. It is another era where African Americans, and particularly African American men, are treated as though we are expendable. Inferior. Thought we'd gotten past it. Here we go again. You know, the, you know the most incredible image of this notion that is defined by the words, here we go again? This notion that African Americans are often viewed as expendable and inferior is a white police officer with his knee on Mr. Floyd's neck for over eight and a half minutes. And the white police officer is cavalier about it and Mr. Floyd is calling for his mom Mr. Floyd ultimately says those words I can't breathe Mr. Floyd goes unconscious and in the next minute and a half he's dead you want to look at institutional racism you have a white police officer with his knee on Mr. Floyd's neck cavalier and three other police officers helping him, or, or at least quietly not saying anything, or a combination of the two. One man killing somebody, the other three wearing the same uniform, supporting it. Now, this is not to say, listen, there are hundreds of thousands of police officers who are incredible, but right there, right there, that's the picture of what we often refer to as institutional racism. And guess what? 40 million African Americans saw that. And in one collective gulp, we said, I can't breathe. I, 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 I thought we were past it. I can't breathe. Oh. And, and then here's what ignites, explodes it. The same day that Mr. Floyd was being, uh, losing his life at the hands of a police officer with his knee on his neck, there is Miss Amy Cooper, Central Park, New York City. White woman walking her dog off a leash in a part of Central Park that is required to have dogs released. She runs into an African-American guy. His name is Christian Cooper. They're not related. He's a Harvard graduate. Check it out. He, he's a Harvard graduate out in Central Park bird watching. I just want to admit, I've never met an African-American who bird watches, but this brother was bird watching. I mean, come on, really? <laughs> he was Bird watching. This is this is this, this brother is something else. And she runs into his bird watching space, and there's a verbal confrontation. She refuses to put her dog on the lease. He ultimately video 
records it, and she, in response, captured on video, says, listen, you better stop recording me, or I'm going to call the police and tell them that there is an African-American man threatening me. And then in a second or two later, all of us are watching as she picks, dials the number, and calls the police with that message. She's being threatened. What was she doing? This is what was so awesome and so horrible and so tragic. Just when African-Americans were trying to figure out, you know, just how sinister this whole thing is, right? She illustrates in public view that there is a basic common understanding among some people. She's a white lady. She gets it that there is this kind of, this, this, the, this, the way that police violates and brutalize black men based on the color of their skin. And if she, as a white lady, says that she's in trouble by a black man, he's more likely not just to be arrested, but even killed. You know what she does? She weaponizes. She weaponizes this understanding that black men and black people in general are expendable and inferior. And that was the match that exploded the powder keg. Right there. That's why, guys. Listen, let me just say, I don't support the violence. I don't believe in the violence. I think... Uh, unbridled anger uh, turns you into the very thing that you despise. I'm not justifying the violence. It's wrong. But while we cry out against the violence, make sure that you understand the why. The why. It's the collective group of people saying, I can't breathe. Oh, make no mistake about it. There's some other organized folk who are showing up, you know, being the match in the powder keg. And in my opinion, they are the worst examples of evil at worst and reminding just how deep this thing is that they would try to drive divisiveness. But there's a lot of folk who are exploding. It's because somewhere down there, there's that collective cry. If you ever experienced horror in your life, you know this, you know that word, right? I can't breathe. It takes your life away. All right, that's the why. Okay? That's the why. The question now is, now what? And this is where I find some real hope in this text. I, this text becomes alive for me. It's powerful text. Well, now what? As Jesus follows, okay, we get it. Cross race and ethnicity and politics. What do we do about it? How do we act? How do we respond? Well, listen, in verse 2, uh, we're told that the apostles, they call the entire believing community together. Listen, everybody comes together. The folk who feel discriminated against and the folk who are on the other side, who, who are not, uh, who, who are the opposite of being discriminated against, right? They all come together because they all have a shared destiny in the one called Jesus. They all have, they're all bound together by the shared blood that Jesus poured out on Calvary's cross. They're in this thing together, right? If it hurts you, it hurts me. We're in this together. So they all come together. And then the apostle says, very brilliant uh, thing they do. They say, look, we got to keep our priorities in terms of the teaching and the preaching. Y'all, you know, y'all can figure this whole thing out to 
together, right? Can you say together? Together. Uh, y'all go have some meetings. There's thousands of people now. We're not talking about 10, 15 people. Y'all go have some meetings and figure out a solution and select seven people that you can put in charge of this thing. And the only criteria we're going to give you is that they have to be full of the Holy Ghost, wise, and of people of, of, well, of good reputation, well-respected. That's all. And we don't have any of the details of what happened, but we, we, we have, the, we have, the, we have the, 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 the product that was produced. What was the product? Watch this. The product was, when we read the list of those seven names that were named, watch this, the, 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 the names themselves reveal that all seven people were of the Greek-speaking group. That all seven of those folk were part of the discriminated community. Think, what an amazing, how did that happen? How was it possible if half of the community is Hebrew, Jewish speaking, and that's the community that's empowered because the apostles are also part of that community? How is it that these seven men are ultimately, listen to me, uh, of the discriminating, the ones that's the, of the community, part of the community that's been discriminated against? Well, I believe, here's what happened. They shared and heard stories. They went back and said, well, let's talk before we come up with a solution. In other words, they listened. And the second thing I think is, you know, they, they, they also lamented as they heard stories of discrimination. They shared in the anger of that they heard and they grieved with one another. Lamented. I'm going to give you the theological connection to that in just one moment. But let me just share a few stories with you in this, in this notion. Terry Murphy is the executive director of our operations at NBCC. On two days ago when I asked him about how he was experiencing this whole thing, he says, well, here we go again. And then he shared a story about how when he was 16 years old, he grew up in, I think it was West Oakland, or, and he was on his way to the grocery store and two police officers drove right up on him. And uh, next thing he knew, he was on the ground. He's being searched and fished. And then finally, they let him up and they said, you can go. And he said, why did you do that? And they said, well, you fit the description of somebody wearing a coat, the same color, blue jacket like you. He looked around. There was tons of people wearing blue jackets all around him. And so Terry says, later on, they found out that there, even, there wasn't even a crime, that the police was just messing with people in the community. And so later he had two boys of his own. And here's what he said. He taught his boys. He said, listen, guys, you two African-American young men, never ride in the car with more than two at a time. If there's three or four, split it up. Why? Because you're more likely to be pulled over. He went on to share um, um, uh, with him. And if you're pulled over, <laughs> keep your hands on the steering wheel. Say, yes, sir. No, sir. If you're going to reach for your license, tell them you're reaching for your license. Don't argue. Don't. The same advice I, give my son, I gave my son Jonathan when he was growing up. All right. Now listen. Listen to me. When you hear that, I remember I shared this a few years ago and one of my beloved uh, friends and, and, and members of our community partner said to me, well, you know, just teach your kids to be law-abiding. Well, the only reason he could say that as a white person in America was because he didn't, he didn't grow up being black. <laughs> Terry said the other thing he taught his kids was sooner or later, you're going to fit the description. 
And ultimately, sooner or later, they both fit the description. Let me tell you another story. Let me tell you my story. As I'm hastening towards a conclusion here. Uh, I, I, I live in one of the most affluent neighborhoods in America. But I make sure that I, and I love walking. I walk five, six miles, three or four times a week. But generally, I make sure that I'm not out after dark. And the reason why I make sure that I'm not out after dark is because I'm just another black man walking down the suburban streets and it's a good chance I'm going to fit the description. Every now and then I might want to push it and, and I start my walk a little late and, and inevitably I have a conversation either with my wife or my daughter who's 15 years old and the conversation goes something like this, Daddy, what time? What time do you think you're going to get back? Uh, you know you can't be out there after dark. You know what that, what that reminds, what that, what that illustrates, you know, and why this breaks my heart? It means that I've got a wife who's a medical doctor, Harvard trained, works Stanford faculty, all that good stuff who is like every other person who's married to or dates an African-American male. She's concerned that if he's out after dark, he just might not come home because he ends up fitting a description, not because I'm a criminal, I've done anything wrong. And I got a 15-year-old daughter who's going to this, like, Ivy League school and high school and all the stuff, and yet she's worried that if her daddy is out after dark, not because he's a criminal, but there's a good chance he'll fit the description. And daddy won't come home. I mean, doesn't that break your heart? It, it breaks my heart. Can I connect the dots here? Ahmad Omri was a young man, 25 years old. He was a football star in this town that he grew up in Georgia. And to keep his body in shape, he was known for running and jogging multiple times during the course of the week. And on this particular occasion, he was out jogging just a couple of weeks ago. And he passed by a fellow who says he fits the description. And he and his son got in a pickup truck, got a shotgun, and they traced him down. And all the Maude Army knew was that there's this two white guys cutting him off with a truck. And they get out, one with a shotgun, the other with a pistol. And, and there's a confrontation. And... He shot three times, and he's dead, not because he did anything wrong, but because he fits the description. You getting it? Does those stories make you lament? Because if you're a Jesus follower, you should. Does those stories kind of make you like, like grieve with me as I'm grieving? Because if you're Jesus, well, you say, well, why do you say that, man? I, I don't see it in the text. Well, I'm trying, let me just hasten. I'm going to just take a little extra time here. Uh, um, there's a story about Jesus in the Gospel of John, chapter 11. He shows up. Lazarus, his good friend, has died. My read of the text, Lazarus dies before he should have prematurely, kind of like Mr. Floyd, right? And that whole long list of folk that I, that I named off. Jesus shows up, and the first thing he does is he hears Lazarus' sister really screaming at him through the text, where were you? Had you been here, my brother would not have died. And the first thing we see Jesus doing is listening. Then the second thing we see that the text says that, uh, that he, he becomes angry and deeply disturbed. He's not angry and disturbed at Mary, he's angry and disturbed with Mary. And then the text says he weeps after looking at her weeping and the crowd around her weeping. He weeps. That's a Jesus who's lamenting. Come on now. 
lamenting. And then he marches with them. If there was a sky scan back in the day, they probably marched about, they probably walked about an hour with this whole, I mean, a, a mile or two. There was this whole group of people marching together, nonviolently, I might add, with their eye on the prize to do confrontation with the real enemy, which was death itself. See, from God's perspective, death is the ultimate injustice because even if you live 100 years, and die, that's prematurely because God's divine intent was that we should never die. Right? I think that is the spirit that Jesus, the one who listens and laments, right? Uh, and the one who, when he gets to the grave, gets ready to lean in and, and calls forth Lazarus. Come on, now, after prayer, he prays and he calls forth Lazarus. And, and he, he, he turns over what looked like permanent reality. He turns it upside down and right side up. And Lazarus comes out. Come on, now, that's the experience of our people. Listen, listen, listen. I believe that that Jesus spirit is what empowered the Christians in the book of Acts in chapter 6. That's why I believe they listen and they lamented and out of that lamentation came that they decided we're going to act together look at verse 5 it says together they chose these men together together in action together and they reversed what appeared to be I'm sure had you asked the Greek speaking Christians earlier they would have said nothing is going to change but together with the other Christian brothers and sisters across race and ethnicity, they changed what looked like was going to be permanent reality into a better reality. That's where I'm going to leave it today. I, I make sure you're back here next week because I got a lot more to talk to you about, you know, some practical things that we ought to do. But, but let me just leave this with you. So if you're asking, what should I do as a Jesus follower? I hope you see. Number one, you ought to listen. Uh, and that comes through the sharing of stories and hearing of stories. If you're African-American, be willing to share your story. If you're of some other race, be willing to listen. Uh, and then secondly, when you hear the pain in other people's stories, you need to be, you need to be willing to lament. Come on now, uh, 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 hurt with them and grieve with them. You don't have to understand the story. It's not your story. It's their story. Just respect their story. And then after lamenting with them, you need to be in a position where you say, you know what, I'm going to learn from them. Uh, let me think about what it means for me if I was in their shoes. Let me stretch a little bit. And then, of course, I believe in that Acts text, they lifted one another up in prayer as though Jesus, in the same way that Jesus prayed and says, I'm going to need all of the power of eternity to reverse this horrendous reality. And I believe they were a praying people and they lifted one another up. So we ought to be a praying people. But after prayer ought to come acting together. They acted together. So you wonder what a Jesus follows you do? That's it. Now let me leave you with some hope. See, by the way, the violence, the violence is not just anger. It's anger plus hopelessness. It's people saying, what's the use? But my dear friends and brothers, there is hope. I see it. First of all, I see hope every time I look at my African-American brothers and sisters. 
I, I, I see hope that despite all of the hell that has come against us, we're not just still standing, we're still rising. <laughs> we're, this is the, in this one year, we, be, we, we, we made history as, we, as the first African-American to be the valedictorian at Harvard, the first African-American to be the valedictorian at Yale, uh, the first African-American woman to become a part of the Blue Eagles, that elite Air Force flying group. I mean, we're shaping history. I, I, I'm finding hope as I look at African-Americans because by and large, we still reject violence. By and large, we still choose love over hate. That, that by and large, we have mastered the ability to call for both forgiveness and accountability. I, I find hope in a people like that. I find hope. But I also find hope. I find light emerging in the darkness when I look across my TV screen and I see not just black people marching, but I see black and white and Asian and Latino all marching together, Republicans and Democrats peacefully protesting. In other words, these wonderful other brothers and sisters that says, look, you can't breathe. We're going to help you to breathe together. We're going to breathe for justice together. I see hope. Ultimately, my hope comes from the fact that I'm the pastor of New Beginnings Community Church. The, the senior pastor of a church that is black and white and Asian, Latino and rich and poor and Republican and Democrat right now. And we're brought together through our common bond in Jesus Christ. And that I know that all over our church community, there are people who are listening and lamenting and learning and leaning in together. Because that's what happens when the spirit of Jesus is empowering your life as it is in this community. I see light amidst the shadows of darkness. And I see God doing greater despite it all. That's why we ought to trust Jesus. Amen. Now let me invite you to uh, consider taking the next step. Here's the option. There's a connection card attached to the website. There's a connection card uh, attached to the Facebook uh, deal, uh, app. And certainly one of those steps is to trust Jesus, to adopt his way forward, to let his spirit fill your life and transform your heart. Another step is I want to challenge all of you in this moment to agree to, to practice what we call Connect Four. That's good. It's connected to our link here. It really is saying is find somebody who's not like you and say, look, I'd love to hear your story of pain. And inside of that, make sure you do four things. One, you listen without judgment or trying to persuade them. Two, you lament, you, you feel with them, you empathize, you, you share in their anger and their, their grief, you lament. Three, you learn, you stretch towards them. What is it like to be in their shoes? And lastly, you lift them up in prayer and ultimately, you ask God to show you how you can act with them to make the world better. You know why? Because the God that we know in Jesus wants to do greater in this moment through you, through me, through us, together. I'll see you next week. 
I want to thank you for leaning in and joining us this weekend. I know it's a very tough time, and because of it's, it's a tough time, I want to encourage you to reach out to your family and friends and others who are struggling with this issue here in America and perhaps watching us across the world and get them to tune in next weekend. As we go just a little deeper, we're trying to ask and answer the question, how should Jesus followers respond? And if you're not a Jesus follower, why is Jesus' way, I would argue, is the best way forward? Lastly, I want you to take a picture of the reflection question. And really, I want to challenge you to make a commitment to say, I'm going to find two or three people who are different from me, and I'm going to ask them to share with me the pain of their story. And inside of that, you're going to do these four things. You're going to listen. You're going to lament with them, right? Share their anger and their grief. Grieve with them. Empathize with them. That's what that word lament means. You're going to uh, learn from them uh, what, what is it like to put yourself in their shoes over the course. Just think about that over the course of the next several days. And then lastly, you're going to lift them up in prayer. And, uh, and when you pray for them and about them, then you're going to ask God to show you how you can uh, move forward and act with them to make this world a better place. Thank you. God bless.